of, uh, actually it works out really nice because for most of our clocks they adjust themselves, so hopefully that happened for you. And otherwise, uh, actually, you might not even be here yet, um, but we're glad you're here. My name is Paul Buckley, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to bring uh, God's Word most Sundays, so we are in Exodus. We'll be in chapters 13 through 15 today, and by the way, uh, when we're going through Exodus, uh, at times we're going to cover larger sections of Scripture, uh, and so it might be good to actually have a Bible in your hands. Uh, so we'll try to project everything, but sometimes we'll be moving a little bit uh, quickly, and uh, it just would help, I think, best to have the Bible right there in your hand. So if you don't have a Bible in your hand and would like one, um, we, uh, actually, if you could raise your hand, and maybe one of the ushers could get, we have some Bibles in the other room, um, so just let us know. Just to have that with you. So, anyone need a Bible? Doesn't have one. So, uh, is someone up here? Anyone else? One, uh, thank you. Uh, so, you can be turning to chapters 13 through 15. That's where we'll be. And I don't know if you guys are uh, Hobbit fans, but in the story of the Hobbit, uh, Tolkien's early epic story, The Hobbit, the great Gandalf recruits and leads a ragtag group of dwarfs and one half-sized human called a hobbit in this grand adventure. Uh, they go to reclaim their ancestral home, uh, the kingdom under the mountain, and all of its riches. And Gan Gandalf is instrumental in making it all happen. So he brings them together. He's the one with the, gr the great power to fight off the, the, uh, the orcs and so forth. But in the adventure, about halfway through the journey, he leaves. He leaves them alone to navigate uh, themselves through this enchanted forest. Um, and there's a reason for that. He has this important business, but he couldn't have picked a worse time to abandon the adventure in the story, if you're familiar with the storyline. And, and sure enough, they go into this enchanted forest and they have all sorts of trouble. Um, I tell you this story because I think sometimes in our lives, in our walk with God, we feel like those dwarfs, and maybe uh, Gandalf is a picture of what God's like. We recognize he's called us to this grand adventure, and he's there with us, and his power is great, but there are moments where we feel like, where did you go? What happened here? Are you going to finish what you started? We, we lose hope and we lose faith, and this story today in, in Exodus is here to teach us that God actually is always with us. He leads us uh, to ultimate victory. He's there through the whole adventure, and he leads us to ultimate victory. So that's the main point of our text. Let's pray, and we'll dig into it and learn from God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for these stories that not only really happened, but have been preserved for us, and have been preserved for us in a unique way to bring home these key points. Lord, uh, we know that this was written originally for your people as they got ready to enter the promised land, and Lord, you used your word then to help them prepare, but those truths are still what we need to hear. And so I ask you, help me, Lord, to, to teach and to proclaim and to experience as well the wonderful truths that are here, that we together might be impacted by them, that we might learn how to walk with you, we might learn key lessons and, and not feel like that you have abandoned us or not, you're not going to finish what you started. So help me to teach and help us to hear and be glorified in it, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I'm just going to read chapter 13, verses 17 through 22 at the beginning. Then we'll kind of make our way through these 
uh, these three chapters here and learn as we go. So God's word, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle, or in battle array in some translations. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph, Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them, did not depart from before the people. Exodus chapter 13, 17 through 22. So this is the first point I want to talk about as we go through here is that God is with us on the road to victory. The opening statement in verse 17 uh, says that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although he was near. Now this is going to set the stage actually for the next 35 chapters of Exodus and, and the next 40 years of the people of God. That as they were led out of Egypt, as they were sent out, they had been given all these riches by the Egyptians. God has sent them out in power. They're leaving, and they don't take the most direct route. They don't go north. If you could show the map that we have. If you look at the map, uh, the area on the left, the green area, that's where Egypt is. And up to the north and to the right, if you can see the Dead Sea there, that's where the Promised Land is. And, of course, it makes the most sense simply to go north, to the road that goes along Mediterranean Sea up through the land of the Philistines into the promised land. It's not that far and it makes tons of sense to go that way but they didn't go that way. They didn't go directly north. Instead they went a roundabout way. And again this sets the scene. This is a transition in the storyline. We've been talking about the plagues and God's uh, deliverance through those things and now it's a new part of the story. It's being set up by this initial sentence that they don't go the fastest way, they go the roundabout way. And a matter of fact, this is going to take them on a journey for the next 40 years or so and through the rest of the book of Exodus. Now it explains why. It says, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. They were not ready to go this way. And if they saw open war, they would have turned back. They weren't ready for a, an open conflict as an armed people, and, and if God had brought them that way, they would have had to have dealt with the Philistines. The Philistines were a mighty army. There's another factor that's important to understand, too, is that the Philistines, the nation of the Philistines, were not under God's judgment. These other nations they fight later and take over uh, have gone so far into their sin and debauchery and evil that God is bringing a final judgment on them, and so Israel is called to be part of that. But that's not happening with the Philistines. And so they would be fighting a people whom God's not calling them to fight, and fighting in a way they weren't quite ready yet as well. Now, God could have used other means, of course, to vanquish the Philistines, but again, he was not going to judge the Philistines. So they weren't ready to fight, they weren't ready for war, uh, and God does not want them to turn back, so he takes them another way. 
he takes them a roundabout way. Um, and that sets the, the theme for the rest of the story. Um, they're not ready yet to face these things. There's things that God wants to do in them. There's things that God wants to do in their lives. There's ways that he wants to prepare them and transform them as a people. And the easiest route is not going to accomplish that. And so God takes them in a roundabout way. That's an important thing to see. Again, remember, this is written to the, the people of God who are at the end of this roundabout journey, getting ready now to enter the promised land. So it's an explanation to them of what's gone on and why. It's important to know that, that God often, if not usually, leads us to the destination by a roundabout way. We like the direct ways. We like quick and easy. We want to get where the promises are. We want to have our best life now in the most direct route. And God, in his wisdom, leads us in roundabout ways. I think we all experience this in our lives, right? We all have our stories of, of something that we prayed for, something that we expected. It's something that maybe was a really good thing that we felt God had told us to walk in. And yet it didn't happen on our timetable. It didn't happen in the ways we expected. Uh, one of my stories is when I was 25 years old, I had a sense of call to be a pastor, and I was pursuing uh, the things I needed to, to do that, to be ordained. I was working part-time, uh, trying to transition. I was an elder in my church at the young age of 25, and, and uh, in a number of ways, God had made it very clear that he was shutting that door on me. And I remember being really mad at God. But God had some years in the wilderness for me before I was going to be ready to pastor. And that's how he works. He takes us in the roundabout ways often to work his will in us, to, to teach us, to transform us. This is a way that he deals with his people here in Exodus, and I'd say it's a historic way that he deals with us as well. So it's important to understand that. It's important to hear the lesson and to trust the Lord because we can actually complain along the way, and that's what we're going to see as we go through Exodus, that the people struggled with complaining, and these stories are recorded for our benefit, that we might take note that we too have this tendency to complain and say, when are we going to get there? How long is this going to take? Why do we have to go this way? Instead of trusting our sovereign and good Lord. So there's a roundabout way, but yes, the Lord is actually leading them out of Egypt. They are uh, experiencing something pretty amazing and radical. That they're leaving Egypt, this place where they've been living for hundreds of years. They've been oppressed. God is leading them out in a dramatic way, fully and finally. And so the, the section of Scripture makes it very clear through the, the sorts of details it gives. They, they leave. They are arrayed in groups of 50. Actually, NIV says equipped for battle, but actually, literally, it says in groups of 50. 50 was the, how they were, would arrange uh, military companies, and that's why it's translated that way. But, but basically, they were organized together in groups of 50, so they were well organized. It wasn't just a, like you maybe saw in the, um, the Ten Commandments, just this motley crew coming out. No, they were in groups of 50, probably 50 families together, and they, they worked as units. They all were leading out orderly, so there was an orderly exit. They took Joseph's bones with them, it says as well, and this is a wonderful detail here in the text. It's not here just by way of incidents because it merely happened. It's meant to say something. This is a fulfillment of promise that's gone on because if we remember the story, uh, Joseph was the one that led them into Egypt generations previously. However many generations, four, eight or so, he had been the one who led them into 
Egypt. And, and God had used him, actually, to, to rescue his people from famine. And it was at a time when they had favor with the Egyptians, and there was a good relationship. And yet, Joseph understood from the promises of God, actually given to Abraham himself. So before Joseph, God had said to Abraham that he would make his uh, descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea, yet they would go to Egypt and they would have these uh, 400 years of persecution and trouble there. And then they would be let out. And so Joseph believed this promise, so he said, when I die, I want you to promise that you take my bones when it's time to go to the promised land, because that's my home. That's what I long for. That's what I look forward to, is the, is the promised land. And it's of the final promised land as well. So when they take Joseph's bones, it's a fulfillment of that promise. It, it, it's a wonderful thing. And, and you can think what it must have been like for those carrying his, uh, would have been his uh, sarcophagus. So he was embalmed like an Egyptian. So there was some sort of grand sarcophagus that they probably took out on a cart um, to be one of the ones that escorted his bones. Just what it would have felt like. Here is, here is my ancestor. And this is the day he looked forward to. And it's happening now. We're leaving. We're going to the promised land. I don't know, you know, the, what, what equivalent can we have of that? I don't know. Maybe, you know, if Miles Standish had foreseen something and said, you know, I want my bones to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery, you know, and, and you get to be the guy that carries his, his coffin there and, and put him in the ground, you know, like, wow, this is great. That's what's going on here. There's this fulfillment, this wonderful fulfillment of God's promise. God makes promises and he keeps promises. And and so this is a way for, for this to be marked and celebrated here. There's another important point here, too, important detail, is the pillar of cloud and fire. This is uh, the first time we, we see this in this way in Scripture, uh, in this storyline. And God is with them in this pillar of fire and of cloud. And at nighttime, it's, the pillar itself is fire, and in the daytime, it's cloud. It's, it's one pillar. There aren't two pillars. It's one pillar that transforms uh, depending on the time of day. Uh, it's either a cloud or a fire. And this pillar represents and manifests God's presence in their midst. And so we see this here in this transition section as we move from the plagues into their journeys. And it's an important detail to note that God dwells with his people on their journey. He's not distant. He's not giving instructions from afar. He's in their midst, manifesting his presence in the pillar of fire and of the cloud. And if you look throughout Scripture, you'll actually find this idea of the presence of God manifest through a cloud in numerous places in Scripture. You'll see it throughout Scripture, uh, where it talks about this idea of, of God manifesting himself through the cloud. Uh, so when they complete the tabernacle at the end of Exodus... The cloud of, of the glory cloud of God fills that tabernacle in their midst. Uh, when they finish the temple later, hundreds of years later by Solomon, a cloud comes and fills that temple. Uh, when Isaiah sees the glory of God in that vision, smoke fills the temple. It's a, it's a cloud, fills the temple with the presence of God. Later on in Revelation, um, John observes worship in heaven, and there's smoke from the glory of God fills that place. Jesus leaves on a cloud, and he says, I'll come back on the cloud. So there's this picture in Scripture of the clouds representing the presence of God. 
It manifests the presence. It's not merely a representation. It is a manifestation of the presence of God. And it's important just to note this, that God's rescue from Egypt is not to rescue them to, to go about their own way and do their own thing. When God rescues us, He rescues us from our Egypts, from our sin and separation from Him to walk with Him. He's with us on the journey. He's with us. He's God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is such an important point here. To be the people of God is to be rescued from our Egypts and our sin to be forever in the presence of God. The picture in Scripture of, of heaven, uh, we see in, in Revelation at the end, this new Jerusalem as a picture of, of eternal, uh, the heaven and the earth together. This is new Jer Jerusalem. If you read about it, the city that's pictured there is of pure gold, right? You're, you hear about the streets of gold and it being made of gold, but it's transparent gold. Now, I know of no such thing, uh, but God can make that, and it's actually a, a picture of the reality of it. I, I think it's a picture of, of the fullness of what God intends, not simply literal, but even beyond that. It's transparent gold. It's glorious. Why is it transparent? At the center of the city is what in Revelation? Anyone remember? It's God. God is there, right, in his glory. There's no need for night or day. So the sun is not needed because there's a brighter presence emanating from the center of the city. It's the glory of God and His presence there right at the center, shining throughout that city. The reason the city is transparent is because the glory of God is to shine throughout the whole city in the fullness of that. It's a picture. Heaven is about being in the presence of God and the glory of God being there tangibly uh, present for us in a powerful way. That's what salvation is. Salvation isn't just being taken out of something. It's being brought to God to live in His presence. This is our destination. And that's what we see going on here. God rescues them to be with them along the way. So that's important to take note. Um, that, that mention there and the fact that there's extra detail, it's repeated twice and so forth, gets us to say, okay, this must be an important point. And certainly it is, as we look here and throughout the rest of Scripture. God is with us. God rescues us to be with us. He's with us on the road to his victory and will be with us forever. That's so important to get and to realize he never will leave us. He never will forsake us. This story is here to remind us in those moments where we're tempted to think, where has God gone? To realize God has not gone anywhere. He's always with us. If you are a believer in Jesus, he has promised never to leave you. There is no place you can go to be away from his presence with you and for you. Well, the story continues in chapter 14, verse 1. Um, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of, of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. So God tells them to, to turn back from their, their journeying. Uh, and encamp in a certain place and to set themselves up there in a way where they're, where they're going to be between a, a, some sort of city or geographical feature and the sea. So basically, turn back and sit there in a place where you're going to be vulnerable between this, this, the mountains or the this, this city and the sea. 
So God tells them to stop journeying the way they are and now to find this place. And of course, what God is doing is he's setting them up as a lure for Pharaoh. This is quite a turn in the story, right? We're supposed to get to the promised land. What's going on here? And what are you doing, Lord? You're setting us up as a lure, as bait for Pharaoh. And yet God is in control. God knows what he's doing. He's working his salvation. He's working in a way to make himself known to the Israelites. He's working in a way to make himself known to the Egyptians. He's working in a way to make himself known to all the nations around that area, that they would hear about what he's about to do, and they would fear him and trust him and come to him. And so they set themselves up in this place with their back to the sea, uh, and Pharaoh gets word of what's been going on, that they've been wandering, and now that they're pinned down, he, his heart is hardened. You think after all that Pharaoh went through, he would finally learn his lesson. But he, but he doesn't. His heart is hardened by God and his sovereignty, but also by his own choices, his own pride, his own blindness in his pride. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened and thinks, thinks now we're going to go get them. What have I done in letting these people go? So he arrays this amazing army. The, the Egyptian army was, was probably the most powerful army at the time. It's a massive and intimidating military force that descends on them. It's, it's an elite crew with him. The elite, it's like the special forces with Pharaoh and then all the other uh, chariots and then the whole army with all the foot soldiers as well. This is a massive Egyptian army that descends on them as they are pinned down with their backs to the sea. And of course, they see what's coming. As, as they approach, and it says that they are filled with great fear. So uh, Exodus uh, 14, 11 through 12 talks about their reply. They're, they fear, they cry out to the Lord. And that's understandable because they see this massive army and their backs are to the sea, but it goes beyond just fear and crying out to the Lord. It goes to the next level of doubt and complaints. And so they say in verses 11 through 12, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Wow, things descend pretty, things pretty badly, right? Things go off the rails here for the people that, that they're not just fearing and crying out to the Lord. Now they're doubting and they're complaining and accusing Moses. It's pretty nasty and it's interesting to note They've just watched these ten plagues and the power of God in amazing ways. They've seen the power of God. They just were part of plundering the Egyptians. They, they saw this amazing thing happen where they said to their neighbors, hey, we're leaving now. Could we have some of your, your riches? Oh, sure. Here's our collection and here's our life savings. Take it. Go. Be gone. So they experienced all these amazing things, and yet here they are at this moment totally doubting, totally forgetting what's going on none of us ever do anything like this right we do and this is here for us it's actually sometimes really shocking to note how easily we do the same thing and how we have our own stories of God's deliverance don't we I mean if you are a believer you 
experience new life. And for some of us, those stories are amazingly dramatic. We've seen God work wonders. And not just in coming to Christ, but in many ways throughout our lives. We've, we've watched God work. We've watched God answer prayers in an amazing way. We've watched God do things like touch and transform lives. We've watched God work. We have, we have just as much evidence, really, that God is faithful. But we have more because we know Christ died for our sins and rose again. God himself took on flesh, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, bore our sins, our sins, and then rose again so we could have forgiveness and victory in him. We have this amazing experience. And yet, a little bit of trouble, and we say, what are you doing, Lord? What are you trying to kill me? Where have you gone? I know that's how I am at least. Um, I can be a chicken little very easily. It just takes a little tiny acorn of trouble to hit me on the head for me to say the sky is falling. That's the reality. I can tell you stories. I have told you stories in the past of how I do this. And I think we're all like that. And this wonderful story is here in Scripture because God loves us enough not to leave us in that place. This is a mirror for us. This is not an opportunity to laugh at the Israelites, but to see ourselves in the Israelites and to realize how foolish we can be, how ridiculous we can be, how short-sighted we can be. And I think that should do probably a number of things. First, it, it should just make us say, oh, Lord, sorry. I'm so sorry. Because I do the same thing, and I did it last, this past week. I had some trouble, and right away I was doubting, doubting you, even angry at you, or even accusing you. I was angry at others. So just simply, that's one of the responses as we look in the mirror of the word. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. The other side of that, though, is to say, Lord, help me to believe you. Help me not to do this, but to believe you and to remember what you've done. Help me not to forget what you have done and help me to look at my present circumstances with faith, not with doubt. God is good to us to give us this story. And to tell us through this story, don't panic and keep your eyes on God. Well, the Lord is gracious to Israel here because he does not bring rebuke. He brings truth to rescue them. God is gracious. And so Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, they're seeing them right in front of them and they're fearing them. They seem to be the overwhelming circumstances for this for the Egyptians you, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Be silent and trust me. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. So God is saying, okay, Moses, you don't need to ask. Let's work. Let's do this now. Um, so he lifts up his staff. He stretches, out, stretches his hand out over the sea, and the sea divides, that the people may go through the sea on dry ground. It's important for us to understand here, by the way, that the sea for the Israelites was not, uh, not just a, a geographical, topographical obstacle for them. It represents something deeper. Now, for us, the ocean is like a nice thing for most of us, right? We think of the ocean. It's beautiful. That's where you want to go for a vacation. Love to go swimming in it, uh, except when the shark alert is up, you know. But uh, it's a good thing for us. Well, for the Israelites, ancient Hebrews, it wasn't. The sea represented chaos and danger. You didn't want to be someone who goes on the sea. 
So it represents chaos and danger. It's menacing. That's how the sea is pictured for them and experienced for them. So that when their back is to the sea, their back is to this chaos and this menace and this danger. There's no way out. Egyptians before them, the sea behind them. They're pinned down. And so God comes in in an amazing, unexpected way. Because there's, no, there's nothing previous to this that, that makes them ready for this sort of deliverance. They don't know how God's going to deliver them. Moses, who's told that, that God's going to do these things, doesn't know the specifics yet. And yet God says, I want you to turn to the sea and raise your staff. And God parts the sea. It's amazing. It's an amazing miracle, an unexpected miracle for them. He parts the sea. He makes a way where there is no way. In an amazing way. He opens a door that they never expected to be opened. And, and, and this is a, not just a cool story, but a lesson. The Lord is fully able to answer our prayers in any way he pleases. There's no barrier to God. And often when we pray, when we're in hardship, we define our prayers and our expectations by the sea and the Egyptians, not by God. And we'll say things Lord, like, Lord, I don't know if there's any way out of this, but if you can, please do this. He can do whatever he pleases. And those things in, in our lives that are those ultimate places of chaos that are menacing and looming over us, they're nothing for him. And in his time and in his ways, he can part the sea. Whether that's a particular circumstance in your life, or, most importantly, the greatest way that he's done this is in Christ. Because all of us, left to ourselves, are caught between enemies. We have the enemies of sin and death in front of us, and the menacing chaos of eternity apart from God behind us. We are pinned down with nowhere to go. And God, in an amazing way, more profound than, than this story, takes on flesh, becomes human, as Jesus of Nazareth lives his righteous life and does the unexpected. Just as the unexpected happened through Moses parting the sea, God does the unexpected in dying on the cross as the God-man in our place. Not what they expected. Not the solution they were waiting for, and yet a complete solution. Because in that death, through taking our sin on himself, paying for it in full, and then rising to life eternal. He parts the sea. He deals with our enemies all at once. We are forgiven, and now we have eternal life in him. God makes a way where we think there is no way. Don't define your experience by those seemingly insurmountable obstacles, but by God, who does as he pleases and is mighty to save, and is with us. I was recently telling Pastor Jeff about our sister church, Grace Church of Frisco, Texas. It's a suburb of Dallas. Uh, they were planted around the same time as us, and like us, they were hoping to grow, and just as they followed Christ and represented him to the Frisco area. And at some point, they began to save money to buy or build a church facility. Around that time, uh, through a contact in the church, they were put in contact with a developer in Frisco. 
that developer was actually redoing the downtown area where the city hall and, and everything was going to be. And he wanted to have a church be right there, right in the center of downtown. And so he, he came to the church unsolicited uh, and said, I would like to offer you this choice piece of land right in the middle of downtown so you can build your church. It's an amazing, uh, amazing story. Uh, and uh, actually, you can put the picture up, no, if you could. That's the church, our sister church. And they moved in there. They built, they were able to build their building, this gloriously beautiful building, uh, to help them minister to that area and, and honor the Lord. And they found out after they had moved in, this church called uh, Grace Church of Frisco, that the developer had already designated the two side streets next to the church before he knew anything about the church. One side street is called Grace Street, and the other side street is Church Street. Isn't that cool? God loves to make a way where we think there's no way, whether it's a church building uh, or our rescue from Christ, most importantly, or, and everything in between. He is a mighty God who saves. And that's what this story is in part about. Well, it continues, of course. His salvation here in parting the sea uh, is, is worked by delivering them from the Egyptians as well. And uh, Pharaoh's army is allowed to follow the Israelites into the sea. God protects them as they journey into the sea and make their way across as the Israelites do. And then when, when they're ready, he pulls out his presence from blocking the Egyptians and they foolishly follow after. They shouldn't have done that, but in their pride, they do. And God's victory now is completed by vanquishing the Egyptians. It's quite a somber moment. And we know the story. They get to the other side. It says, actually I can just read it, verses 26 and following. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remains. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This victory is sobering and amazing. It's a final victory. And if they had been allowed to get through, if the Egyptians had been allowed to get through, they would have, would have killed and captured Israel. It would have been the end of the deliverance. And so God must deliver them by taking all the Egyptians and demonstrating his lordship over the mightiest army and the gods of Egypt in this way. And the people see his deliverance. They see the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. They fear the Lord, and they believe the Lord. That observation is meant to be noted and meant to be understood and applied. That we're meant to look at God's deliverance and be in awe. To see his power and to remember, behold him and to fear him and to believe him and to follow him. And he has worked victory for us. This is a picture, ultimately, of, of the victory he will bring about at the very end. 
For in the Old Testament, the enemies of God are kings and nations like Pharaoh and Egypt and others. But in the New Testament, those kings and nations are objects of God's favor. He wants to win them to himself. He wants to use his people to reach them. And the enemies of God in the New Testament are not kings and nations per se, but principalities and powers, the, the evil one, the devil and his minions. And God tells us in Revelation that he will finish things just like he did with the Egyptians. Revelation chapter 20, speaking of this, this final time, it says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So this is a mighty army coming against God's people in the end. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a parallel to what goes on with the Egyptians. And the devil and his minions with him will be like Pharaoh's army. They aren't thrown into a sea, but a lake of fire, and they'll burn forever under God's judgment. And Jesus will bring his final kingdom at this point, his full and final rescue. His rescue has started at the cross. At the cross, through what Christ did in his death and resurrection, he defanged Satan. He took away the power of sin and death. There's an antidote. There's, there's relief. He's defanged the enemy, yet the enemy is still around, trying to bring his reign and working to attack us and come against us. And Revelation teaches us that God will have this final victory over the devil and his minions and bring about his eternal kingdom. And so we are to live in light of Exodus 14 and in light of Revelation 20 as a people of a sure hope. This is a Exodus, it's a past victory. For us, the fullness of it is a future victory. And we live in light of that future victory. We remember his past victories. We remember his victory through the cross. We look at the victories that he's worked in our own lives, the way that he's delivered us and rescued us. We remember all these things, and we set our hope on the fullness to come. And that's not an idealistic, pie-in-the-sky hope, like we use the word hope. I hope it happens. That's not how Scripture uses hope. Scripture uses hope this way. I know it will happen, and I'm looking forward to it. That's what hope in the Bible is. It's a forward-looking faith. That's a sure faith. And so we live in light of this. We celebrate, celebrate what he's done and what he's going to do. We remember it. And that leads us to the final point here in chapter 15. As we watch what happens, of course, it says, Then the Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They've just been delivered. They thought they were going to die. They had the greatest army in the world arrayed against them. They had the sea behind them. And God comes in power to open that sea, to lead them through, and then he annihilates the army of Pharaoh right there in front of them. He delivers them. They are free now. They're never going to be persecuted by the Egyptians again. They're free. And of course, they sing. They sing and celebrate what God has done. And so there's this wonderful song recorded here in Scripture. Moses' song, it's, it's one of, of actually three different songs recorded in Scripture by, by Moses. It's this song of celebration. 
And it's a wonderful song, and, and we see it reiterated and then sung. It's sung by Miriam as well. It's a beautiful song, and it's a picture of what we're called to. That we have been delivered in Christ. We will be delivered, so we must sing and celebrate. And remember, now singing is not just like a nice pastime. We're not, scriptures, the reason scripture gives us for singing is not because like, well, if, you know, enjoy music. And if you're musical, yeah, sing. No, we're to sing as his people. We must sing. And, and, and it's a picture here of the people of God seeing this victory, seeing this rescue, seeing this, their salvation in the Lord, and celebrating it. And so they sing about it. And it's, it's really interesting, and I don't have time to go through it all, but just to note what's in this song. There, there is content. There is style, and there is passion. There's content, there's words that mean something. There's style that arranges things in, in a pleasing way, in a helpful way. And there's passion, there's emotion in this. And those are, I think, the key elements in any good song or poem. We don't know how this was sung. We don't know the musical side. Um, but it was sung. It was a song. And there's a certain pattern, too. If you look through it, uh, you'll see, for, so I think we have this to put up, verses 1 through 3, it speaks of who the Lord is, what he's like. I will sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider is thrown to the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So it's, it's, the first part is about who God is and what that means to us, personally. Do you see that, by the way? This is my God, and I will praise him. Sometimes people push back on worship songs that have I or me in them. And I would just say, well, have you looked at Exodus 15? That's very appropriate to sing of what our God has done for us, what my God has done for me. It's right here. The focus there isn't on me. It's on God, what he's done for me. God's the one who's great, but he, he's great for me. This is real. Not just an idea. It's not just that God is a God of love. No, God loves me. That's amazing. So there's who God is and what it means to me. And then there are the deeds that show that. So verses 4 through 5. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. So who God is and what it means to me, the deeds that show us what he's like. And that's the structure. That's repeated. There's actually seven different sections in the song. The final section is really important to note, too, because it speaks of what God's going to do. It's interesting. It talks about how he will work these things. Through all this, he's working in a way to bring us to a destination. It says in verse 17, For you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So this song is full of who God is, what it means to me, based on what I've seen him do, and what he's going to do. There's hope. There's looking forward to this final destination. Now, this is the promised land for them. This is the reestablishment, uh, in part, of Eden for them. To go into the promised land is to have God come and live in their midst, to restore what was lost in Eden, to have him with us, to enjoy him, to walk in his glorious ways, to be under his law. It's a picture of 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 Eden being restored, and we know this is ultimately fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth. So when we sing, we should do the same. We should sing of who God is. We should sing of what that means to us. 
We should recount the deeds that he's done that show us these things. And we should sing about what he's going to do, how he'll finish it, and how it's going to be glorious, and how we long and look forward to the fullness of his victory. So we're going to sing in a little bit the song, God Over All. And if you take time to look at the words of God Over All and the Song of Moses in chapter 15, you'll see they're very similar. So this song says, God over all, giver of life and health and breath. You can put the words up. I want to sing of your love. Came as a man, humbled you, died the sinner's death. I want to sing of your love. Your love has saved me. By your grace, I now draw near. And your love has set me free to glorify your name. And I, I want to sing of your love. I'll never forget that you have bought me with your blood. I want to sing of your love. In all I do, may your great love be shining through. I want to sing of your love. And then it finishes, and on that day. When you come back to claim your own, yes, we will sing of your love. Then we'll bow down, praise you forever at your throne. Yes, we will sing of your love. Let's transition to remembering and celebrating and singing of his great love.